and I was finding these pockets of articles, great, excellent articles in mathematics magazines. Uh, but then I started to realize word problems are a marriage between literacy and mathematics. And these amazing mathematics articles weren't always addressing the literacy component. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sofronis. I hope you've been able to catch our first four episodes of season nine. We've covered a lot of ground on the topics of professional development, as well as leveraging the language repertoires that multilingual learners bring with them. If you missed an episode, a reminder that you can always go back and listen wherever you get your podcasts. And for most episodes, we have accompanying blog posts on our EL community at elevationeducation.com. This week, we bring you a great conversation with Diane Koo, who I met recently through our mutual colleague and friend, John Seidlitz. I was impressed by Diane's research and strategies on helping multilingual learners solve word problems in math class, a topic which our team at Elevation has spent a lot of time considering in the development, release, and support of Elevation Math in schools around the country. Like us, Diane is passionate about the connection between language and content in math classes and how we can help teachers best serve their students in this area. We've explored this topic in depth on our learning community with blogs, videos, and podcasts like this one. As always, you can find those resources and many others on our EL community. Just go to elevationeducation.com and click on the resources button on the top right of the screen. Once there, type whatever you're looking for into the space, press enter, and you'll find lots of resources. On this week's episode of Highest Aspirations, what does research show about the importance of literacy skills when solving math and specifically word problems? How can educators prioritize and build in academic conversations into their classroom routines? What can teachers do to marry math and language so that multilingual learners can engage with the content more deeply? We discuss these questions and much more with Diane Koo, an educational author, speaker, and consultant with 18 years of teaching and instructional leadership experience. Her new book, Solved, A Teacher's Guide to Making Word Problems Comprehensible, applies practical, research-supported, strategic instructional approaches to equipping learners with lifelong skills applicable beyond the classroom. She has presented locally to school campuses and districts, regional for ESC and text TESOL, and nationally for the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations, and I hope you enjoy our conversation with Diane Koo. Diane Koo, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, so another person who I was introduced through, uh, John Seidlitz, who I feel like is now like the promoter or the producer maybe of Highest Aspirations. I have to give him credit for all these great guests. So first, thanks to him for for bringing you along. He's somebody I really appreciate and uh, gotten to know your work, which, which, um, which has been exciting. We've been talking at Elevation a lot about math and the language necessary um, for particularly multilingual learners to be successful in math, which is something that you know a lot about. So before we really dive into that, um, tell us how you started to get involved in this work. I, th I found that kind of really compelling when we talked last time. So um, I was a classroom teacher for 10 years, and uh, there was a reoccurring issue with how I was approaching teaching solving word problems. But as a classroom teacher, you're so busy and there's so many strings pulling at you in different directions that it wasn't until I became uh, instructional support that I had the time to look into this and 
I started every time I went into a math classroom, it was always the same question. Can you help me teach these students how to understand word problems? Mm. And so I, I wanted to approach it pedagogically and I really wanted to be able to help them at a professional level. And so I was like, okay, there, there's resources out here. And I started looking for books and there weren't any books on how to teach word problems. So I had to dive a little bit deeper and I was finding these pockets of articles, great, excellent articles in mathematics magazines, especially like in CTM. Uh, But then I started to realize word problems are a marriage between literacy and mathematics. Mm -hmm. And these amazing mathematics articles weren't always addressing a literacy component. And so then I started doing some literacy research because I thought, what do we need to know pedagogically pedagogically, from a literacy standpoint so that we can address the math? Because really in a word problem, it's the words that are exposing the math. So mm-hmm. we have to address the literacy. We have to. And so I started writing down this research and how these two different disciplines are married and, and how they complement one another. And my research ended up becoming 18,000 words that I had written just for myself. And I thought, wait a second, I could tweak this, turn it into a book, and then other people can have access to this too. And so that's what I did. I tweaked it. I submitted it. I actually, I I submitted the manuscript to um, education publications. They very, very politely told me there wasn't really a market for what I was doing. They were wrong. (laughs) But uh, that's not what John Seidlitz thought. So thank you, John. (laughs) And so, um, and thank you, Atmosphere Press, who first also published my book. And so uh, that's where I am now. I have this book that I get to share with teachers. Great. That addresses the literacy and mathematics pedagogy. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing the story because I think it provides some good context. And I want to dive into some pieces of that. You you told me like when we last chatted, we had, I always chat with folks for like a half an hour before we do these. Um, and I sometimes I wish that I record those conversations because they're so great as well. But one thing I want to highlight from that one is you told me about this really interesting and I'm sure like very painstaking exercise that you just alluded to of determining um, how much of state testing, in your case, that's star testing, mm-hmm. contained words that were uh, above level for, mul- for multilingual learners. So I, it sounds like you literally like combed through all of it, uh, but you tell me, how did you go about doing that? And uh, to expound upon what you found, you, you kind of mentioned it when we, in your last uh, uh, response, but I'm, I w- I'd like to know more. Sure. So uh, when I first started doing my research, I had this assumption that for our multilingual learners, and in particular English, are the ones who are acquiring this English language, that the problem was the language and the word problems was too advanced. And so in order to test that theory, I went ahead and looked at state assessments. And in my case, we're in Texas, it's the STAR test, Mm -hmm. the STAR. And um, so I just did one year. I just wanted a sampling. So I did 2007. And I wrote and into a spreadsheet every single I cataloged every single word in the third grade fourth grade and fifth grade math star and then I cross-referenced it with um, Edward Fry and I for those of you not familiar I, I was also a kindergarten teacher when I first started and we had to teach sight words or adult words and a lot of them also came from Fry and what he did was he also cataloged the English language and he found, okay, here are the 
100 most used words in our English language. And then here are the 200. And then he went all the way to the thousand most word used words in our English language. Mm -hmm. So I went step by step, how many words in these math word problems on their arm, our state assessments, how many of them appear with that frequency? And so what I noticed was it wasn't far off. A lot of our words are in the 1000 most used words. And, um, but there was, there are pockets that need to be addressed. And that was in third and fourth grade, it was five to 8% were mathematics specific words that aren't commonly used. In fifth grade, it was around 10% of the words on the test were mathematics specific. And so even though my theory that the math test was too hard to read might be dispelled because it was commonly used words, that 10% is profoundly important because it can lead to so many misconceptions or misunderstandings right. in a word problem. Yeah, so in some ways that makes it like more manageable um because you have at least you know what they are i mean the work that you did is so crucial and it sounds so like i'm glad you did it i can't imagine how many cups of coffee i would have needed per day to get through that particular <laughs> exercise but um but what a great finding i mean that it just it just makes it a little bit more manageable a little bit more understandable and you kind of know what you didn't know before right which i guess mm -hmm. was the kind of point of the exercise um, yeah well, I was trying, what I was trying to do, because I thought I was going to change the world with this information, I was trying to create a list of high frequency math words. Mm -hmm. And 10% of a test doesn't really equate to high frequency, but it's still impactful. And so um, some words, and I'm sorry I interrupted you, but some words that occurred in high frequency would be rectangle or shaded. And these aren't words that appeared on fry or dolch. So, right, right. Yeah, I think it's a great, just a great activity to do. And what a great way to cross-reference it with those common words um, from Fry. And, you know, related to this, one thing you told me, um, again, last time we talked, I kind of wrote it down was, was you said, you said in the real world, word problems are everywhere, um, which is a little bit horrifying for me thinking about my experience with word problems in math <laughs> as not, by the way, an English learner. I always had the privilege of understanding um, English when I started taking math. But what what do you mean by that expression in the real world word problems are everywhere? And how does it apply to the topic of language literacy and math instruction, particularly for those students who are learning English? All right. So um, I'll start small. In a kindergarten classroom, if you're offering a treat to a student, they are calculating in their head which one is larger. And that in itself is a word problem that happens just from there. Or even if you have siblings and, you know, who gets the more serving of ice cream, who has more soda in a cup. All of that is very simple, but they're actually word problems. So I remember that. I feel <laughs> I feel better about myself. Okay, good, good. But but thank you for putting it in that context. It makes me feel better about myself. All right. Well, I used to smile to myself when I would see them calculating. But the problem was when I was a classroom teacher, I wasn't exactly there on my pedagogical journey of teaching them how to express that process thinking. And that's where our language comes in and, and literacy as well comes in because we want to give them the language to express what they're thinking. So they realize this is math. And so that they don't grow up becoming adults and saying, uh, I, I don't do math at all because yeah. they do. Yeah. Like me, you know, yeah. and like many of us who kind of like thought that math, I mean, I think that's changing a lot, like in, in a very positive way. Uh, it seems like it's, 
maybe happening a little bit more slowly than some of us, some of us would like, but that misconception of like, there are math people and there are people who are not math people. It seems to be breaking down some, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause we're all doing it all the time. It's just, um, it's not a traditional classroom word problem. Instead right. it's, it's, you know, translated, it's extrapolated and translated and we don't always recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and this gets back to like the access and the content, uh, or I'm sorry, the access to the content through the language, um, which is something that we at Elevation talk about a lot. And me kind of on the podcast chatted with a lot of people about that particular topic, academic language, academic conversations, even the marriage between social language and home language and how that all kind of works together. But focusing on that um, academic conversations piece, we have spoken a couple of times with Jeff Sweers in the podcast about it, who's kind of the guru on this whole thing from from Stanford um, and uh, and very, very well known. Um, and he's great. Also, a really humble guy who I always appreciate. This is something that you've written about in your book, um, this idea of academic conversations. Tell us why um, it's so important, number one. And then I guess more importantly, how how can math teachers go about making it a part of their instructional routine? I mean, that seems to be that second part seems to be the, the biggest challenge. And correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, you're not wrong. This is a challenge. This is definitely a challenge. So I'm going to read a, a post that I keep on my computer. And it's from, it's from Zwerz. And it says, how can I assess thinking skills and language proficiency in useful ways? And I keep that as a reminder that that is my focus. But I was listening to your podcast with him, and he's explaining the answer throughout the whole entire time. And he's talking about meaningful engagement. And that's our purpose. We want meaningful engagement. In the math classroom, um, traditionally, we see math as an isolation of numbers. But it's not because mathematicians in the real world, they talk with each other. They have mm, false starts, just like Ferenni Mundy says. They have, I love that from her. Mathematicians have false starts. They need to talk to each other. They need to work through their ideas. They need to test out incompleteness of thought or misconceptions or expansion. And because mathematicians have the language to be able to do all of that, they're able to become successful. Mm. We need to be able to take that and put that in our classroom as well. We want our students to expand on their ideas, address their misconceptions or identify incompleteness of thought. And we can't do that unless we teach them how to have those kind of conversations. And they don't have to be structured where every word they're saying is something that they're reading off of a, a sentence stem. But we can prompt them and prompt their thinking so that a conversation can organically evolve from those prompts. There are two things you said that I think are so great for me to hear. And I think anybody who's listening to hear, and it's probably more than that, but you said the idea of false starts, right? Then mathematicians are having those all the time. And then you said the idea of... Um, incompleteness of thought, right? Two things that in my experience with math were not really encouraged, right? It was really all about precision um, and and letting the teacher know how you got to where you were going in a very kind of like, like one way, right? Where I felt like I was- Procedural is a great word for it. I felt like I was always like thinking, doing things differently. And I felt like I was wrong for doing that. But the more that I speak with folks like you, the more that I realize that I start talking about like mathematicians in the real world. And I also have a, live with a, a math <laughs> interventionist, by the way, um, and my wife, but um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's more become like, that's, that's more important. Right. But that kind of goes against, 
I think, at least in my experience, and I'm showing my age a little bit, I hope, um, because I hope that it has changed a lot. But as with anything that kind of goes against traditional teaching and learning, making the kind of changes that you're talking about requires a huge shift in mindset and certainly an amount, uh, a small amount of unlearning as well, or maybe a big amount of unlearning, right? So I guess my question there is, as we think about um, content teachers who are not necessarily trained in language and literacy instruction, by the way, through no fault of their own in many cases, how, how do we go about making positive changes that will allow particularly those multilingual learners, but really all students, to engage more deeply in the kind of mathematical thinking and, and the mathematical conversations that you're, that you're talking about? That's a big so, question, by the way. I'm sorry if it's that's, okay. <laughs> that's a huge question. Huge. But I think um, we're thinking about how do we take this shift, this mindset shift, and apply it to our students. We also need to think of how do we scaffold our teachers because a shift in mindset and a shift in learning and, and maybe unlearning or tweaking what we, what we learn and understanding how it fits requires scaffolding for us as well, which is why I think it's very important that, um, like in my book, I talk about prompting, prompting thinking. That's a guide for teachers in the classroom. This is how I'm going to get our students there. This is my help. And so I think it's very important that we start there. We, we, we scaffold how we're going to teach so that we understand, and then we can apply it to our students. Because if we don't embrace that shift then it's, and understand it, then it's hard to get our students to also shift in how they are traditionally taught. In your experience, where does that come from? Does that come from a particular teacher, like a grassroots, like organic kind of movement where somebody's doing something awesome and then the teacher next door is like, that's cool. Can I learn about that in the like four minutes that they have between classes? Or is that, and you can tell it's like my own experience, or <laughs> or or does that happen from the top down and it's a kind of a cultural thing and like policy changes need to take place? Ooh, that's a toughie because honestly, it would be great if it was a culture. A classroom culture happens, but it's more impactful if it's a campus culture, even stronger if it's a district culture. And so um, it can happen at any level. And of course, what we really want is that it's systemic. Sure. So it's throughout a whole district. But I mean, teachers can impact their students just in their classroom as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I have an opinion on that. And I think I think the answer is both, you know, but uh, obviously the ideal is when you have a situation that is a cultural, I can think of, and I'll call them up by name because I think they're doing great things. Prince William County um, Public Schools in um, in Virginia, who I was just had the pleasure of going down and visiting with them. And I've worked with their administrators for quite a while. They've been on the podcast and various series that we've done. But the way that they're approaching math, like the collaboration that they have between their ESOL department and their math department is like it's like nothing I've ever seen. And so you don't have the mm. silos. That stuff's breaking down. It's all part of their strategic plan as well, which is like to br basically to break down silos, to increase collaboration. It's also helpful that their math coordinator um, or like director of math, I don't know what the title is, comes from a place where he was like giving PD to math teachers who are working with multilingual learners. Uh. So that's helpful. <laughs> but, the, but the collaboration that they have there is really, is really pretty amazing. Um, and we're yeah. actually doing a, a case study on them, which will be available. Maybe I can link to it if it's done by the time this podcast is released. Oh, that's interesting. I want to read that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Perspective matters. It's very helpful what you said about him doing PD. I mean, he has gained perspective. And so he has a broader understanding of how to apply this. And that's how math works too. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, you can rely without going too far into left field here. I mean, I think you can rely on like if, if you're relying on expertise, like if you have math expertise, regardless of if that person or that team has experience with multilingual learners or, or the strategies that we're talking about, they all at this point have experience working with multilingual learners or at least students who don't have the language necessary to be you know, successful in math. And so between that and then the expertise of a multilingual EL, Emergent Bilingual ESOL department, choose the word you're going to use. Then you really have that's where the kind of the magic happens, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I completely agree. <laughs> uh, okay, got a little off topic there, but that was I think that's important to to mention. Um, so, you know, I, one thing that you talk a lot about is um, the idea that students all don't have the same needs, and when we talk about multilingual learners, that is a that is not a homogeneous group. There's various levels and various different, obviously, social and cultural situations and family situations. Um, so it's not a new concept. We all know about differentiated and personalized learning. But I think it's worth going through some of the challenges that multilingual learners might experience when confronted with word problems. So like in your experience, like mm-hmm. if you're talking to a math teacher who's about to like start, maybe they're working with multilingual learners for the first time or they're a brand new teacher, what would you kind of have them look out for? What would you anticipate that their students are going to be confronted with when they kind of have to deal with those word problems? All right. So word problems are, like I said before, they're a marriage between literacy and mathematics. So um, something I did in my own classroom often was, can they do the math and it's the words that are the issue? Or is it both? Or is it they can read the problem, it's the math that's the issue. And so it's very important that um, anytime we're working with students, we can identify and isolate what their specific need is instead of just doing a one size fits all, okay, everybody, this is how we're going to do it. Because then we're, we're not always teaching to meet the needs of every student. And so that's my number one thing. Where, where is the hiccup in their understanding the word problem? Right. And so much of that is just about knowing where a student is when they come in and assessing them frequently and kind of having, you know, in many cases, having the data they you need to kind of look at the student's um, performance on testing, et cetera. Um, but it sounds like what you're talking about basically is understanding who the student is and what where they are, what their kind of uh, challenges and struggles are and what they're good at, what assets they bring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a mistake that sometimes we make as educators, and I say we because I made it, so a mistake I would make sometimes is I made the assumption that the language was the issue when sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was the math that was the issue. But then there's other times where I made the mistake of thinking that the math was the issue and it wasn't. The student just didn't know how to express themselves. And they that's what they needed support with, was how to express their thinking because they were getting frustrated and there was a disconnect because we both could not communicate the process thinking. And so yeah. that's why it's important that we provide prompts or we provide even sentence stems as starters to give them the power of understanding how to express what they're thinking. Yeah, and you're getting into now, I think the like the strategies that you use, like once you kind of diagnose where a student is or assess where they are, then the hard the hard part is like, what strategy does an educator take knowing that a variety of these needs and challenges are going to pop up probably on a daily basis in the classroom. It's not like a student under like that's the only problem they have the entire year is that they don't the literacy. The only problem they don't understand the entire year <laughs> is the math. It's like Wouldn't every that day. Be great? Just, that would be great. So like my question is like, I mean, what I guess in a perfect world, like what supports should 
do teachers need when they're being confronted with all of these? I mean, it's a it's an incredible challenge that math teachers have because most of them are trained in math and the content. They mostly lack a lot of the necessary training that they need, although that seems to be changing as well. It's like, how do you, and maybe another unfair question, but like, what have you seen that's worked for, for in situations like these, I guess is the best way to ask the question. Okay. So number one, and I'm answering so quickly because I was starting to answer one question. I did not do a good job actively listening to your second one. So yeah, welcome to the club. That's okay. That's fine. Um, we often think that we are superheroes and that we can address everything all the time. I think it's really important that we know that we're going to make mistakes. And even in my book, for every um, strategic approach I talk about, I'm like, and here's how I failed everybody. This is what I did wrong. Because um, the real truth is uh, we, a lot of times we're so intent on teaching each student that we forget that they can teach each other. Mm-hmm. And so engagement, I'm going back to your other podcasts, engagement and meaningful conversations. Um, students can provide their own zone of proximal development when they're working together. And so it, it kind of lightens the load for the teacher because now we're more of a facilitator. Okay, I see the direction you guys are going. And um, here's how I can guide you towards um, broadening that perspective. Or here's how I can address this misconception that's happening in this group. Or here's how I can bring in an idea to complete that thought that you're having. And so that kind of lightens the load for a teacher if we allow our students to engage with each other and learn off of one another. And they can kind of address their needs in ways that a teacher cannot whole group. And and I think that requires two things, well, more than two, but I have two off the top of my head that it requires, and I'm smiling because it goes back to what we talked about earlier and also about what you said. So earlier we talked about the idea of unlearning, right? Like, and how you need to change things. You know, one of the things that everybody, well, not everybody, but there seems to be this like desire to have a classroom that's well-managed, right? And that looks like, that looks, excuse me, that looks quiet and rose and like the teacher is in front. And it's like, that still persists. Like it's still persistent. And so the one thing that it needs to this, what you're talking about requires is to kind of embrace the messiness of learning, right? That requires an administrator who's going to walk into the room and do an observation and be okay with like a little bit of chaos because that's how learning happens. You said earlier with mathematicians, false starts, everything else, it's got to be the same environment. And the second thing is like you talked about teachers, we want to be superheroes. We want to do everything all the time. And that's, like can be really insidious because it because <laughs> when like when you said lighten the load i thought oh, some teachers if they if they lighten the load they feel they're not like doing what they need to be doing so you got to let go of that and you have to understand mm-hmm. that like yes learning is happening so i guess those two are related but what is what's your response to that is that well i i do think that sometimes we're clinging to our identity of a teacher and a very traditional we are the ones who are showing you how things are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so if we let go of that identity and let it shift into we're more um, here to um, scaffold your, oh my gosh, I'm at a loss for words. I'm sorry. Facilitate your learning, guide yeah. your thinking, more of that. If we just change our perception a little bit, it becomes easier to relinquish our need to be the ones that introduce concepts or be the ones that solidify the concept in your head and understand that actually our students with engagement with each other, they're the ones that can own their learning in that way. 
Yeah. I don't think you struggle with your words at all, by the way. That was, I, mean, I think it's spot on that. And that's kind of like what I was trying to elicit with that, because it's, we hear about that, like on a larger scale with schools need to change. And this is one of the ways schools need to change. We need to make sure that like we're having more discussions and there's more engagement with students and they can't be the sage in the stage, but the guide on the side kind of thing. And some people think, well, that's good for some t- subjects, but not others. And when they think of not others, they think of math, right? So like for the, Ouch. right? Well, it's true. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, that's like the, that's not what I think, by the way, just uh, don't throw me under the bus, but I do think some people think that way. Um, yeah. And I think it's important that we, remember that that's still a perception even if even if it's not a perception for teachers it might be a perception for parents and community members who have a huge influence over what's happening in schools right mm-hmm. yeah that's that's powerful what you just said because it's the perception that needs to change and a huge reason i think why we think math is in isolation is because we don't use language to express our process thinking and so we don't always realize how much we need engagement because if there's no language if we're just solving in isolation and there's no language involved, we don't realize, wait, we need to engage to fill in these missing gaps in our learning. Right. And so the more we have students engage with one another, the more we realize, oh, this is what a math classroom is. It's constant engagement. Yeah. Yeah. This was kind of brings us back to the very beginning, which is great. I love that when it comes full circle. Um, I, I want to kind of wrap up with one thing that you said. This is, I mean, I feel like, Diana, I'm sorry, asking you like a lot of challenging questions that don't have simple you answers. Are. You are. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it, like we were talking before we hit, hit record, this is not meant to be PD. This is meant to be like the inspiration that makes you take the next step. So if you're listening to this, like, you know, Diane's book and then the stuff that we link to, that will kind of get you to where you need to go. This is pie in the sky stuff. And I'm going to continue with that trend with this, with this question that I have. So like, you make a point um, to highlight that research says there's no shortcut to comprehension and no shortcut to making sense of the math. So like, what do we do? I mean, what do we do with that? Like, what? <laughs> if there, I mean, everybody likes to do things thoroughly and in the right way, but how do we make the changes that we're looking to make given that there aren't shortcuts? Okay. So this is going to be slightly anecdotal. Uh, when I was a classroom teacher, I, I taught my students underline important information, box your numbers, rewrite the question, and then, um, and then, you know, highlight or identify keywords. And this is how we're going to solve a word problem. And so they would do that, and it would be slightly successful. But then um, if we shifted from one word problem to a different word problem, all of a sudden, it's like I had to reteach everything all over again, even though they were Boxing numbers, they didn't know what operations to use. Even though they were reading, writing a question, they were still multiplying for everything. And so it was draining. It was, uh, I felt like a failure as a teacher. It's like, wait, what? I'm doing all these strategies. Why aren't they solving correctly? And by they, I mean 100% of my class, you know, I don't want to leave any student lost. But the thing is, whenever we take shortcuts, we're actually robbing our students of opportunities to learn and opportunities to acquire life skills, critical thinking, and um, anything that's applicable for them beyond our classroom. And so I, I didn't want to rob my students anymore. And uh, it's important that we don't take shortcuts in our teaching because then we're skipping valuable learning for them and discovery. And uh, having my students still be lost after doing strategies, mm, that's draining too. (laughs) And so I just thought, 
okay, I'm going to put in the effort. We're going to learn this. I'm not going to take any shortcuts. We're keywords are important supports, but they by, they bypass the actual making sense of the math. So we're going to use keywords as a support to making sense of the math instead of just replacing making sense of the math. Instead of circling numbers, we're going to find out what do those numbers mean? What are they attached to? Because it's what they're attached to that leads to operational thinking. It's the relationship between that. And so um, by understanding the pedagogy behind the math, I was able to work with my work with students and we're no longer taking shortcuts, but even though that takes a lot of work in the beginning, by the end of the year, you have a very different outcome, a very different product because you have students who are able to transfer and apply mm-hmm. critical thinking. It sounds like what you did in a nutshell was connect the literacy to the math, right? Yes, it's a marriage. Whenever we try to do strategies, we're divorcing the two. But whenever we're addressing the pedagogy, we're keeping that, the what complements word problems, which is the literacy and math together. We get to embrace both of those. And that means you're embracing the language. Yeah, that's great. That was, a, that was such a great way to, to wrap it up because I think that's, you know, you explained it, but you didn't say at first marrying the language and the literacy and the math, but that's what I was thinking the entire time because that's what you were doing. Um, that's great. All right. So as we wrap up, I have two more questions for you, Diane. One is um, the question that I ask everybody. Uh, and you were just actually reading. Oh, you showed me a book that I guess oh, I yeah. recommended. What was it called again? Choice, Choice words. words. And I don't remember who, like, wh- I don't have it in front of me. Who I wish I could credit the person who came on the podcast and recommended that book. Two. <laughs> two. So if that was, if you were the person who recommended that book, rem- know that that people do read them after listening. Um, anyway, but now now it's your turn. So is there a book uh, or resource that's influenced you either personally, or professionally that you'd like to share? So um, I have this thing where people give me books and then I put them on my bookshelf and maybe years later, I start to read them. And that's what happened with this book right here, Brain Rules. I was given this book six years ago, maybe. And I'm just now starting to read it. I'm like, why didn't I pick this up when I was giving it six Because you're busy. Ago. You're busy. <laughs> but yeah, I'm really into right now brain rules. And then this one, the whole brain child. And then there's another one about culturally responsive teaching in the brain. So I guess that's my theme right now. Brain stuff. Was, yeah, brain stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's how my brain works. Brain stuff. <laughs> um, that's great. Thank you for recommending three of those. Um, and that happens to me, by the way, all the time too. The books that you see behind you, many of them I have not read many of them I have many of them are sitting there um that have been given to me for or or people have recommended them and I've gotten them but just haven't had a chance to read them um that's great and we should mention that obviously uh your book as well is I'm sure oh, yes. important to you as well because you spent a lot of time doing it tell us about that book how people can get it what it's called etc all right so it's a long title but it's called solved a teacher's guide to making word problems comprehensible and even though I I wrote it I still have to look to make sure I don't mess up the title <laughs> It's great. But um, it was initially published through Atmosphere Press, and now it's being um, the license rights through Sidelets Education. And so uh, we're going to be having a book launch coming up in October, three dates in October. So uh, look it up. It's going to be really fun. Go to Sidelets Education. You can see the uh, the events. Excellent. And we'll try to um, to to get that on our social media feed as well, because that'd be useful for anybody who's 
uh, in our uh, either Yale community or using Elevation uh, as well. So appreciate that. Um, last question, Dan, how can people learn more about the work you're doing? Where's the best place they can go? Oh, okay. So I have a blog coming out soon and Silas Education. So I guess SilasEducation.com, their, their um, website, because that's where I'm uh, consulting right now. But I'll have a couple of blogs coming out within this year and next year. And then you can purchase my book or you can ask for PD through me based on my book. And I'm more than willing to do that. I absolutely love presenting with my book. Great. I'm also on a committee in NCTM. And so we're creating a teacher toolkit that I think will be coming out in July. I mean, not July, I'm sorry, in uh, next year. Great. Well, all those things, the blog posts, uh, the guy that you just mentioned, we will certainly share in our community brief that goes out every Friday. It seems like everything that's written by by Silas, we kind of uh, you know put out there. And this one in particular, if it's about the topic that we talked about, I think it'll be useful. And obviously, um, if you're listening to this, there will also be a blog post on this episode with some takeaways that has not been written yet, but will have been written by the time <laughs> you listen. So, um, so Dan, with that, really appreciate um, you taking the time. I, I definitely uh, tested you with some with some difficult questions, more about my curiosity than anything else. And I hope that it was useful for others. But uh, you did a great job um, coming on here and uh, and giving us some inspiration to move forward. Uh, one more thing, I don't want to sound selfish here. The book tour. Uh, the book launch, I'm sorry, it's going to be with my colleagues as well, who also wrote math books. So uh, shout out to Adrian Mendoza and Dr. Jim Ewing as well. Perfect. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, great. Well, we'll, we'll uh, get the word out on those. And like I said, everything else that you are doing, include the blog post and the, um, and the guide that you're working on. So again, Diane, thanks so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it this time. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.